public science is not an ivory tower. It connects to research efforts that are going on in the private sector. We wouldn't have most of the modern miracles of biomedicine without the NIH. From the MIT Sloan School of Management, this is Data Made to Matter. I'm Neil Hartman. An MIT Sloan professor turns the scientific method back on science. Pierre Azoulay uses online data to track research and innovation. He's finding significant returns on investment for the public funding of science. I spoke with Pierre about superstar scientists, the research to patent pipeline, and why funding science matters. We're all taxpayers, most of us. And as a taxpayer, I want to make sure my money's not going to waste. When I hear about federal money going to study alcoholism in monkeys or fish on treadmills, I sometimes wonder how it's connected to my life. Make the case for me. Why should I care about funding science when there are so many other pressing problems in our country? Fish on treadmills? <laughs> I've never heard of that one before. <laughs> it's a new study. I see. So if you think about innovation and growth in sort of long-run perspective, and you look at things in the rearview mirror, you will find out that a lot of the innovations that we rely upon and that really have been uh, the source of much economic growth in the United States, but also around the world, have their roots in science and very often publicly funded science. You know, we could talk about the internet. Certainly the internet as we know it today wouldn't have this character if it had stayed purely in the public domain as a government-funded project. Mm -hmm. But it is not happenstance that its origin was a government-funded project. Closer to us, like think of something like Google, right? Larry and Sergey were graduate students at Stanford in the computer science department, and they were on NSF fellowships. So it's at least worthwhile to think about would we have Google if those mechanisms for the public support of science had not been in place? And it's possible that we still would have it. But it's at least a question that ought to sort of make us stop before we do anything drastic mm -hmm. uh, and think about stopping public support of science. So you recently published a paper in Science on the value of public investment in scientific research. You found that it has a big impact on the private sector. Tell us about this study. How did you come up to this research question, and what did you expect to find? So the impetus behind this research project was to say, we have to start from the universe of things that are actually funded and supported, and then follow them forward to see what might happen to those ideas. And the context here is you know, the biopharmaceutical industry. So we looked at the projects funded by the National Institutes of Health mm -hmm. for a period of about 25 years. Okay. And there's been sort of a revolution in the past 10 to 15 years um, in the use of patent citation data. And we basically gathered this data at a large scale. We harvested it, we developed an algorithm to sort of extract that data from the text of the patent documents. What that has enabled to, uh, to do uh, systematically 
is to map the entire chain of research mm -hmm. from a funded project, say by the National Institute of Health, to the publications that come out of those projects, and then often much, much later on, a reference in the patent of a private sector firm to that particular piece of research that came out of the public funding. And so that gives us a way of measuring intellectual influence. Mm -hmm. And when we tabulate those data, what we can find is that, in fact, a pretty high proportion, around 35% of grants, produce research that is later on an intellectual influence on private sector efforts as evidenced by a reference in a patent. I think the most important upshot for the general public is that actually public science is not an ivory tower. Mm -hmm. It connects to research efforts that are going on in the private sector. We wouldn't have most of the modern you know, miracles of biomedicine mm -hmm. without the NIH. We also wouldn't have it without a pharmaceutical firm that can take those incipient ideas and refine them and develop them and turn them into products and then do the boring, nitty-gritty work of actually getting it to market. Right. We need both. It's, it's not either or. So you mentioned the NIH. President Trump had proposed cutting a billion dollars in funding for the National Institutes of Health this year. But in May, Congress approved $2 billion in additional funding for the NIH. Do you think they read your paper? I should answer yes. <laughs> of course, that's of course. why they did it. Um, but in truth, there's been, over time, a pretty strong bipartisan consensus that funding research, and in particular, health-related research, ought to be sort of a federal priority. So what President Trump is proposing in his budget would certainly go against that long-standing bipartisan consensus. I'm personally very worried about it um, because I think that's like eating your seed corn. Um, and, and the thing that's difficult but also necessary to explain to the public is, you know, if this happened tomorrow, if the Trump budget as currently presented went into effect, you wouldn't feel anything with respect to the NIH cuts. Neither would you next year or even five years after that. Mm -hmm. It's the patients in 20 years from now, in 30 years from now, maybe in 50 years from now, that will pay the price because of the insights that will not have been gained. Right. So one thing we can observe in our data is how long things take. It tends to take at least 10 years for a piece of research to yield a citation in a patent. And what's important to remember is the citation of the patent is only the beginning of the process for a pharmaceutical firm. There's probably 10 more years of development. Mm -hmm. right? So most of the NIH portfolio, if it's going to have an effect on the well-being of humankind, we're talking about sort of a 20-year lag. Right. And I guess, you know, President Trump will be golfing at that point. <laughs> uh, so maybe he doesn't worry about it. I worry about it a great deal. Right. So you and your collaborators have created quite the data set. 
It took 10 years, but you've put together a database of more than 12,000 scientific stars. It's a record of their jobs, awards, patents, papers, citations, and more. What has your data shown about the cost and benefits of scientific collaboration? So, yeah, that's, that's another project. So, as you said, this is a big data set that we put together over a very long time of superstars. They're the superstars of medicine. Mm -hmm. okay? And they are people who get a lot of grant money, people who get cited a lot, people who get a lot of patents, members of the National Academy of Sciences, and a few other mm -hmm. set of criteria. And basically, what we were interested in was specifically collaboration with superstars. And it's actually really hard to make progress in that, in that question. And so we thought that a productive angle was to think not about forming a collaboration with a superstar, because we don't really have a handle on how that is decided, mm -hmm. but thinking about what would be the effect of losing such a collaboration. Mm. And it's a little bit morbid, but we focused on the effect of losing one of your superstar collaborator because he or she died suddenly and unexpectedly. Okay. And so that's sort of a natural experiment. And we then ask, well, so you're, you're not a superstar, you're a simple Joe or a simple Jane of science, and you lost your superstar co-author, and what's happening to your creative output? What we found is really bad things are happening. Mm. This really affects the publication productivity of those left behind. Mm -hmm. The superstar seems to be taking down the field you know, with him or her. Right, right. At least that's what we thought after the end of the first paper. Mm. You know, it's always interesting if the practitioners, the people who are living it, have sort of an intuition. Mm -hmm. And in this case, when we talked to scientists about what might happen if you lost a really prominent collaborator, uh, we heard all kinds of stories. We heard stories very congruent with what we ended up finding, which is, well, you know, what superstars do is that they are a fount of idea for the field, and if the source is going dark, then the field is going to atrophy. But we also heard the story of, no, no, you don't understand those superstars. They suck all the oxygen out of the room. Oh. You know, they can also obstruct um, the development of younger scientists. Now, this lack of consensus was great for us because <laughs> this meant that the response, you know, the, what we would eventually get, that was not foreordained. Um, so I like to do those kinds of projects. Mm -hmm. Now, why am I going back to tell you that story? It's because, in fact, in the new paper that we just uh, released, we are able to reconcile those two perspectives. Okay. Okay. So instead of looking at what's happening to individual scientists, we're able to look at what happens to the subfields in which the superstar was active after he or she dies. Okay? And there's a countervailing effect, uh, which more that cancels out the first effect, which is that there's actually a new burst of energy in the field that comes from people who are not collaborators of the star. Ah. And so what seems to be going on, very much consistent with the view of the thing with the superstars that sometimes they suck all the oxygen out of the room, right. 
is that they can regulate entry into the field. Well, that's one thing you can do if you're a superstar. Right, right. People listen to you when you say, this is worthy, this is not. And sometimes it's probably to good effect, but sometimes maybe not. And in particular, what we find is that when the superstar had a sort of a posse, you know, disciples right. in positions of power, so they were editors or they were studying on funding committees, um, they can even regulate entry into their field from beyond the grave. And so this burst of energy from outside, right. actually we find less evidence of that when the superstar had sort of very strong disciples than when he or she didn't. It's fascinating to see the impact on collaborators versus non-collaborators by the superstars. That's right. And so identifying those non-collaborators took another five years. Mm. But... Now we're done. Terrific. And that will be the end of the morbid subchapter <laughs> sub of, my, of my research agenda. In the movie Moneyball, baseball players are used and traded based on advanced statistics. Is your database a moneyball for scientists? No. <laughs> I don't want my work to influence how individual scientists are evaluated or perceived. Because we have a way of doing that, and that way is actually to read the work mm -hmm. and to form an opinion. And this is why peer review is so important. So that would be a great misuse of what I do. I think what my work can be useful for is to thinking about how we should reform the institutions of science going forward. You know, in the United States, we are extremely lucky that in the post-World War II era, we inherited an ecosystem, really, for science that has had no equal elsewhere in the world or at any other point in history. Right. In the U.S. system, the government tends not to write really big checks to few institutions and then letting those institutions sort of sprinkle right. uh, the pixie dust on their favored people, as happens in my native country, France, often. But instead, most of the ideas, they're grassroots, right? Scientists apply. And then the worth of those ideas is being evaluated by other scientists. Mm -hmm. This is how most of the NIH budget and the NSF budget is actually allocated. Right. So that was an American invention. And then the other piece is there's, there's an ecosystem. So people have heard of the Gates Foundation, for example. Mm -hmm. But before the Gates Foundation, you know, we had the Burroughs Wellcome Foundation. And we have the Howard Hughes Medical Institute. And now there's the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative. And the list goes on and on and right. on. That aspect of that there are multiple funders is really important as well, because that means that there's at least some diversity of funding approaches. Your goal is to turn the scientific method back on science. But not everyone is on board with this. Some people in the scientific community worry that it gambles with careers or that it could provide excuses to take money away from science. What do you say to these fears? So the first fear, I think, is not a serious fear um, because the current system gambles. It just gambles in a way that guarantees we're not going to learn anything. Mm. So I don't buy that argument. The second argument, you know, especially in the current climate, I am a little bit more receptive to. I understand what people might be thinking. Mm -hmm. You know, I'd say two things. I think, first, in the long run, sunshine is the best disinfectant. 
the scientific community has a responsibility to be the best possible steward of public funds. Mm-hmm. Um, and in general, as a taxpayer, the fear that I should have about the way in which we fund science is not that scientists goof around or go to conferences in Hawaii, though sometimes they do. You know, that, that's, that's not the right fear to have. Right. You know, this is, as my wife tells me, yeah, and you're, you have complete freedom in your life. You can work any 18 hours of the day you'd like. <laughs> the fear is that we tackle small problems. Mm-hmm. We don't take enough risks. We don't set our sights high enough because setting our sights high might mean that we're more likely to fail and so maybe less likely to get the next funding round. Right. And those are very real tensions in the lives of individual scientists. And, you know, this is a hard problem to crack. Sure. Right? Sort of like provide the frameworks within which individuals then have the right incentives to take appropriate risks. Right. And the current system doesn't always do that. I think that's what the public should be worried about. Have you seen evidence of the scientific community adopting your ideas and methods? No. I mean, maybe I'm letting the perfect being the enemy of the good enough. <laughs> no, I think there's been a real problem in the scientific community that, uh, you know, the scientific method applies everywhere, but not to the organization of science itself. So I view it as a great you know, failing of, of the current stewards of the national innovation system mm-hmm. that they don't experiment more. You know, I'm working tirelessly to try to change that reality, but it is slow going. Mm-hmm. Pierre, what's the message of your work for the global business community? What do you hope they're hearing? My hope is that collectively they would learn that they have very much a stake in this system. Mm -hmm. And they are the great beneficiaries of this system, but because the ways in which they benefit from it are often very delayed, very indirect, and sort of very hard to trace, Mm -hmm. they are often not aware of it, which also makes them less likely to be the vigorous defender of the scientific enterprise that they could be, uh, because I think they could be a very effective advocate. What do you hope the public and policymakers are hearing? How would cuts to scientific funding impact our economic future? The truth is we don't know. And it's very difficult to know this, though I'm working on research projects to bring us closer to an answer. Mm-hmm. But we, you know, we only have one planet on which we can... Uh, to run experiments to see what happens to well-being in the long run right. when you cut public support for science. And so, you know, though we can always do better, I think the scientific community has served the interests of the United States incredibly well for the last 70 years. Mm-hmm. Despite all of their problems, I'm hard-pressed to think of another agency of the federal government who is more worthy of my support as a taxpayer than the NIH or the NSF. So we, you know, we shouldn't throw the baby out with the bathwater. We can just clean the bathwater. 
but that requires a scalpel, not a hatchet. Right. I don't know if our current president is very good with the scalpel. Pierre, it's been great to have you. Thank you. Pierre Azoulay is professor of technological innovation, entrepreneurship, and strategic management here at MIT Sloan. You can follow Pierre on Twitter at Pierre underscore Azoulay. You can read more about Pierre's work at his website, piazoulay.scripps.mit.edu. Data Made to Matter is a production of the MIT Sloan School of Management. We are committed to bringing together MIT's intellectual resources to help managers invent the future. You can learn more at sloan.mit.edu. If you like our show, please subscribe. You can leave us ratings, comments, and questions on iTunes. I'm Neil Hartman. Join us next time for Data Made to Matter.